This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This is the sixth episode in the amazing story of a Chinese monk named Raban Sama. We ended the last episode with Sama's protege and friend Marcos firmly ensconced in the seat of the Catholicus of the Church of the East. Because we've already had five episodes in this series spread over five weeks, it's easy for subscribers who are listening to each episode when it goes up to forget the arc of Marcos's amazing story. He showed up at the door of the monk Sama's cell in the Fang Mountains of China when he was only 15. He let Sama know that he wanted to become his disciple. Sama knew the rigors of his solitary existence were beyond the pale of most people's endurance. But Marcos proved good to his word and sworn devotion. He proved a quick learner and as willing to brave the ardor of the ascetic's life as humbly and silently as his mentor. The two men became close friends. The years passed. Sama's lessons spoke of lands and wonders in the West. They fired Marcos's imagination. He wanted to go see the places that he was learning about. He shared the travel and discovery itch with his elder friend. And over time, Sama's curiosity was sparked as well. So the two decided to make the journey to the headquarters of their faith, as well as the Holy Land, the birthplace of that faith. This was at a time in history when the Silk Roads were more of an idea than a reality. Securing resources from the local Nestorian community and permission from the great Kublai Khan, they set out. Months later, with dozens of harrowing and death-defying moments behind them, they finally arrived in Maraga, Persia, headquarters of the Nestorian Church. The Nestorian Patriarch, bearing the title of Catholicus, was a conniving schemer who sought to use the fame and favor of these two Chinese envoys to his own advantage. Their babes-in-the-woods demeanor was but a convenient mask over their more-than-savvy awareness of the Catholicus's shenanigans. When the way to Jerusalem, their ultimate destination, proved closed due to the hostility of the Muslim Mamluks, they decided to wait things out in Persia to see if the path would eventually open. They reluctantly agreed to take the promotions that the Catholicus insisted, which proved a wise move since he then soon died. The church leaders responsible for selecting his replacement considered Marcos the perfect candidate and against his protests installed him as the new Catholicus. He was just 36 years old. His elevation was quickly and enthusiastically endorsed by the Mongol Ilkhan Abaka. Marcos's transformation from a 15-year-old wannabe Chinese monk into Mar Yabalaha the Nestorian Catholicus, would be similar to a teenage Siberian farmhand becoming a deacon at his local church and then 20 years later walking to Rome and becoming Pope. It's just that strange of a story. And what of Sama? What of the man who'd been Marcos's mentor, his tutor, his teacher and guide? There arguably would not have been a Marcos without a Sama. Most men would be envious of the advancement and promotion of their student, not Sama. He encouraged Marcos and gave him wise counsel at the outset of his ascension into office as the head of the Church of the East. And that is where Sama's story would have ended, as a footnote to the story of his protege and friend who rose from obscurity to fill the seat of one of the most important offices in church history. But all that's occurred so far 
is but the preface, or maybe better, chapter 1 to Sama's tale. Because the turmoil in Central Asia between the forces of Kaidu and Kublai Khan kept the routes east closed. Maryabala asked his friend to stay and manage his household, which he moved from Mardenis capital at Moraga to the older capital at Baghdad. The Mongol Ilkhan Abaka was eager to shore up relations with his non-Muslim subjects after a severe trouncing by the Mamluks at the Battle of Homs in 1281. He worried that the Muslim victory might raise insurrectionist leanings and hoped that his Christian, Buddhist, and Jewish subjects would prove a counterweight to any violence. So, making a visit to Baghdad, he granted Maryabalaha the power to levy taxes to support church works. But before the law could go into effect, Abaka died, most likely from complications due to alcoholism, a frequent problem with Mongol rulers. It was the spring of 1282. Abaka's death set off a powder keg that was the reality of Mongol succession. To the victor go the spoils. The intrigues that followed are the stuff of legends, but are wide of our scope here. Let me summarize by saying that the short reign of a pro-Muslim Khan set the Nestorians adrift. Maryabalaha was accused by Muslim advisors of the Ilkhan of conspiring with his enemies and supporting his rival in the contest for succession. Their accusations were furthered when a couple of envious and ambitious Nestorian bishops joined the Whisper Conspiracy against the Catholicus. The Ilkhan was duped, and had Maryabalaha, Rabban Sama, and the governor of Mosul that they were accused of being in cahoots with, arrested, and hauled to trial in the spring of 1283. As the trial commenced, a long-laid conspiracy unfolded. Witness after witness was brought in who accused the three of conspiring to stage a coup. They'd supposedly sent letters to Kubla defaming the Ilkhan as an apostate and turncoat intending to side with the Great Khan's enemies. So, Yabalaha, Sama, and the governor were brought in one by one and questioned. Because they were innocent of the charges, their answers all lined up though they had no idea of what they were being charged with ahead of time. Then, Yabalaha made an astute suggestion, evidencing the quickness that had commended him as patriarch in the first place. An easy way to prove their innocence was to send a writer after the dispatches that had been sent east to Kublai Khan. Go get them. Read them for yourself, Yabalaha told the Ilkhan. So, a writer was sent, the letters were read, and the conspiracy against the three was exposed. There was nothing in the letters to the great Khan that were derogatory toward the Ilkhan. Then it became clear that the Ilkhan himself may have been in on the conspiracy from the outset. Though it had been exposed, he refused to release or exonerate them. He kept them in custody as his Muslim officials dug dirt, rooting around for some other way to condemn them. When nothing could be found, the Ilkhan toyed with the idea of just asserting his right as ruler and executing them. He was only barely persuaded not to by more fair-minded officials and his own mother, who was a Nestorian. She convinced him that he had nothing to fear from the three, that they only desired to be good citizens and to encourage their congregations in the same vein. So he reluctantly released them and returned the gold letter patent to Maryabalaha. The Catholicus realized that staying near the seat of power was unwise as it provoked the Muslims who now felt empowered and used their favor to advance their position at the expense of the Christians, Jews, and Buddhists. 
He moved to a small Nestorian community near Lake Irmaya, and while there, he had a vision in which he learned that he would never see the Ilkhan Ahmad again, and he never did. Ahmad's rival Argun, whom Yabalaha and Sama had been accused of being in league with, continued to stage raids in the hinterlands of Persia. Just after the turn of the year 1284, things fell apart for Ahmad. His departure from the celebrated Mongol religious tolerance to a certain favoritism towards Islam only served to alienate the majority of his officials and counselors who were not Muslims. They remained loyal, but that loyalty began to erode as they watched him being progressively moved into a posture that was hostile toward his non-Muslim subjects. Ahmad arrested and executed one of his brothers who was accused of being in league with Argun. Then, in July, Argun's forces were defeated and he was captured. But instead of executing him, Ahmad turned him over to his officers and returned to his new bride. This proved a fatal mistake. Argun became the rallying point for all of the turmoil that Ahmad's mismanagement had provoked. One official after another began voicing discontent with his rule. The discord grew as they realized that others felt the same way they did. It quickly became clear the unrest was widespread. Ahmad's willingness to treat with their enemies the Mamluks, his arrogance, his ill-advised dismissal of widely regarded officials because, well, some of his close favorites were envious of them, and his very public mistreatment of the popular Mar Yabalaha and Raban Sama for no reason but prejudice, combined to throw him into a disfavor provoking a coup. Sensing one was about to ensue, Ahmad attempted to flee to the Ilkhanate's northern enemies, the Golden Horde. Well, that was all the proof that Argun needed that Ahmad was indeed a traitor. His contest for succession to the Ilkhanate after Abaka was now proved valid. They ought to have selected him rather than the disastrous Ahmad. When it was clear to Ahmad's supporters that he was doomed, even they switched sides and laid hold of him so that he couldn't flee to the north. Argun reluctantly executed his uncle Ahmad on August 10th of 1284. Once Argun took his seat in the Mongol capital at Tabriz, Mar Yabalaha gathered a group of church officials and headed there to congratulate the new Ilkhan. Argun was informed of the trials that Yabalaha and Sama had endured at the hands of the previous regime and promised a new day of favor with the Mongol throne and court. He offered to have the Nestorian conspirators against Yabalaha arrested and executed. But the Catholica said that the church had its own way of dealing with them and asked that he be allowed to deal with them accordingly. Argun agreed. The two metropolitans were defrocked and excommunicated. What would the new administration mean for Raban Sama, who, while officially designated as the Nestorian visitor general to China, couldn't go there because of the ongoing hostilities in Central Asia? The new Ilkhan Argun was beset on all sides by enemies. The Muslim Mamluks to the west and south, their allies the Golden Horde to the north, and Kaidu, the enemy of Argun's ally Kublai, to the east. The Ilkhanate had little to fear from the east because, well, Kaidu was preoccupied on his eastern front with the Great Khan. They also didn't worry much about a massed attack from the Golden Horde in the north. As fellow Mongols, they held an uneasy peace that neither wanted to break. The real threat came from the Mamluks, who the Golden Horde was more than willing to let act as surrogates for them in the contest with the Ilkhanate Persia. 
The Ilkhans had tried to extend their conquest into the Holy Land, but were rebuffed by the Mamluks. And when the Mamluks pushed eastward beyond their bases in Syria, the Mongols were able to pull off a draw that stung the pride of the heretofore victorious Mamluks. But the Mamluks hadn't really staged a concerted effort. The clashes were more limited forays than a major campaign to take the east. Argon worried that now that the pro-Muslim Ahmad had been removed and executed, the Mamluks would take offense and stage a major campaign to conquer Persia. But as he looked around for allies, the offerings were slim. Kubala was too far away and already locked in a struggle with his cousin Kaidu. No help would come from that corner. Only one option remained, Christian Europe, the very realms that the Mongol machine had just a few decades before almost overwhelmed. Would Christian Europe set aside that terrifying and recent horror to ally with the Ilkhanite and a new crusade to purge the Middle East of the Muslim threat? Well, that's the plan that Argun settled on. It was an ambitious and audacious proposal, far-fetched to say the least. Certainly to the Europeans, the Mongols were as great a threat as the Mamluks, maybe even more so. But Argun's back was to the proverbial wall. If the enemy of my enemy is my friend, well, maybe an alliance could be forged between Persia and the crusading states of Europe. But who to send with that proposal? What embassy would the West receive and treat the offer of an alliance with the seriousness that it needed? What about a Chinese monk who had been promoted to ambassador and had helped install a patriarch? <laughs>